مساء الخير جميعا uh, on behalf of the Center for Arab and Middle Eastern Study and also Institute of Palestine Studies we are so glad to welcome you all in this book uh, launch and debate uh, about my dear friend uh, Berla Isma um, Isa uh, the endurance of Palestinian political factions and everyday perspective from Nahr al barid camp so uh, uh, we are so glad that we, uh, she, uh, uh, you will give uh, um, 20 minute presentation of the books and, uh, uh, of the, uh, and then we have two discussants, uh, Ismail Sheikh Hassan with us and uh, Hala Abu Zaki. So let me just uh, introduce our speakers. Uh, Perla Isa is a researcher at the Institute of Palestine Studies in Beirut. She holds a PhD from Exeter University and MA in, uh, in Arab Studies from Georgetown University and second MA, imagine, in Mechanical Engineering from MIT and a Bachelor Degree in Mechanical Engineering from McGill University. Uh, Berla runs research training and creative uh, writing workshops in the Palestinian camps in Lib uh, of Lebanon which uh, culminated in the publication of two uh, collect, uh, collections of short stories in the Arabic language, um, and currently is translated into uh, English, uh, uh, published by IBS Institute of Palestine Studies. And uh, another one, Al-Hub Fil-Mukhayyam, uh, published in 2019. Additionally, she uh, co-director and co-produced a six-part independent documentary film series, uh, Chronicles of Refugees, that looks at the global Palestinian refugee uh, experience since 1948. And actually, I was one of the interviewees. You remember? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was where uh, we have met, so uh, it was really... Uh, so nice encounter that time, and, and this uh, recording uh, here, here, yeah, yeah, okay, and and record, okay. So, um, uh, so I continue where uh, we stop on Ismail uh, Sheikh Hassan. So uh, he was active in uh, uh, in the Nahr al-Barid Reconstruction Commission uh, in 2007, which was uh, a local grassroots initiative, uh, um, which played a leading role in developing a local community reconstruction vision in their camps. And something not written in his bio that he he uh, he was invited two days to the prison. Uh, in Amn uh, al-Am because of uh, uh, of this uh, initiative. And he is currently an uh, urban planning advisor uh, to the Camp Improvement Project implemented by UNRWA in Palestinian refugee camps. He co uh, completed his do uh, doctoral uh, dissertation in the field of urban planning in uh, uh, KUL University in Leuven in Belgium and, and lecturer uh, and lecture, sorry, at the Urbanism Master Program at the Lebanese University uh, since uh, 2018. 
He is also a founding member of the Saida Community Garden and of the Lil uh, Medina Initiative, um, which conducts urban activism and research effort in Saida. Finally, uh, we have uh, also a friend, Hala Abuzaki, is an anthropologist. She is a, a fellow at the Institute uh, Convergence Migration and an associate researcher at the Migration and uh, Society Research Unit in Paris. Her research focuses on conflicts and uh, forced migration in the Middle East. She got a PhD in social anthropology from the Ecole uh, des Etudes en Sciences Sociales in, uh, uh, in Paris. By the way, uh, Michel Agier, uh, we study his, uh, uh, he was her supervisor, and I have the honor also to be in the committee uh, of her PhD committee. So her doctoral research focuses on social and urban history and the memory of Palestinian civil war, sorry, of the Lebanese civil war, and not yet we have civil war in Palestine, alhamdulillah, in the uh, Lebanese civil war and the Palestinian refugee camp in, of Shatila. In parallel, she worked on spatial and relational reconfiguration of Palestinian refugee uh, community in the context of uh, um, uh, in the context of conflicts and migration. More recently, she collaborated on the research program on the trajectories of young people in education and employment in Lebanon and Jordan as a postdoc re researcher at the Center for Development and Emergency Practices. Uh, is part of the Oxford uh, Brooks University. So uh, please join me in welcoming our three guests. And uh, Perla, I give you the floor. Hello, everyone. Thank you all. Sorry. Thank you all for being here. Um, I'm very happy to be here with you, and I'm. I really couldn't think of two better people to be discussing my book with than Ismail and Hala. So really, thank you for, for joining me today. Um, this book is really about two things. Uh, first, it's about the endurance of Palestinian political factions, as the title indicates. You know, it asks how are the factions uh, enduring in Lebanon in the face of you know, widespread criticism against them. But as uh, you will see, and as, as I will explain in my presentation, um, um, as I was doing my fieldwork, I was faced with another set of questions, which relates to the nature of factions. So as we all know, factions are a group of people, basically, who come together to form this kind of political party. Uh, but yet, I argue that in the way we think about the factions, in the way we write about them, in the way we research them, uh, and the way we imagine them, we imagine them as existing, as an entity, as a separate entity that exists independently and outside of these very people that can come together to form this faction. So uh, this book is really about these two things, and I will be explaining more. Um, so to go back to my first question, the initial question that kind of drove me to do this research and to write this book, which is um, how are Palestinian political factions in Lebanon 
uh, maintaining centrality in Palestinian political life in the face of widespread criticism. So now, um, anybody who, who does a little bit, little bit of work in the camp would know that uh, factions are openly criticized. Um, they are the object of numerous jokes. Um, so for example, a young man in Shatila once told me a joke that his grandmother had told him that the Palestinian people are like a bag of garlic, that no matter which one you pick out, you always end up with a head. So meaning like the head of a faction, works in Arabic, Ras, Muras al-Fakir. So that basically factions have split so much that there are so many small factions that almost any Palestinian you would meet would claim that they are the head of a faction. Um, others would say that factions need to be put on birth control pills to kind of prevent them from <laughs> giving more, uh, creating more. And then in 2006 and 2007, I did a, a documentary uh, that Sari uh, mentioned, where we interviewed with colleagues and where we interviewed around 300 Palestinians worldwide. And uh, we asked them, one of the questions we asked was, does anyone represent you politically? And out of the 300 people, one person responded, yes. Um, so the kind of uniformity of the no answer, you know, across geography, across socioeconomic status, across age, is really indicative of kind of the general feeling that Now, to make the initial question of the endurance even more puzzling, you know, um, I would say that if there was no alternatives, one would say, well, they're enduring since there are no alternatives. But actually, there have been many alternative Palestinians in Lebanon have um, done many initiatives to try to alter their political So one example is uh, an election, a local election, a popular election that happened in Shatila camp in 2005, where the camp's residents voted in an open election to elect a committee that they called Lijnet al-Ahali, the People's Committee. Um, so a little background information. Palestinian camps in Lebanon have what is called a popular committee. It's supposed to act like a municipality, resolving issues of water, electricity, garbage collection, et cetera. Although many residents would say that they do not. And therefore, they are the brunt, sorry, they bear the brunt of a lot of the criticism. And although they're called popular, um, they are um, appointed by the faculty. So in 2005, um, um, there was the first and up until now the only open election um, in a camp in Lebanon. Uh, Shatila had been without electricity for about eight months as one of the main generators exploded and the factions couldn't agree on how to replace it. And now during the blackout, also the two factions uh, clashed in the alleys leading to the death of a bystander. Um, so here the factions were not only looked at as being you know, inefficient, but also as being the cause of insecurity. So, um, so as a result, um, protests erupted in the camp, leading to a meeting of around 200 people uh, where they decided to hold a local election. And then on the 22nd of May, 2005, around 800 people voted in the first um, election. And so, they, 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 uh, um, so there was an elected committee um, that restored power to the camp, so that was successful in solving the issue at hand and started tackling water issues, and then um, members resigned. And the, 
some of the scholars who, who wrote about this initiative uh, portray it as being, you know, um, independent and in opposition to the factions and blame its demise on the factions. So I wanted to know um, how are, you know, unpopular factions destroying these kind of promising and independent grassroots. However, once I was in the field, um, I was faced with a frustration. Um, and I think that uh, people will probably recognize this frustration, and I bet Ala may recognize it. Um, I had trouble fig figuring out who was in a faction from who was not. Um, so, for example, when I first met Um Ali, who's the wife of Abu Ali, these are uh, not the real names, pseudonames. So Abu Ali was one of the elected members. And I, um, so when I first met Um Ali, she tells me that Abu Ali is actually close to the PFL. So then I go and ask Abu Ali, you know, are you close to the PFLP? He laughs and say, actually, um, I'm a member of the DFLP. So these are Palestinian factions, uh, but I love them. The, yes, the DNF Front for the Liberation of Palestine. So when I asked him, you know, so why did you leave the DFLP? He laughed and he said, you know, it's a long story, a thin. And then I asked him, you know, are you independent like the criteria for the candidacy requires? He answers, well, actually, I'm a friend of the PFLP, again, back to the PFLP. Uh, but follow, he followed that by a very strong criticism of all the parties, including the PFLP. So similarly, uh, when I met with another elected member, who I'm, I'm calling Abu Steif, I saw, you know, he had posters of Yasser Arafat in his shop. So he saw me looking at them, and he, he tells me that he's officially a member of Fatah, but that unofficially he left them for personal and not political reasons. And then he adds that no matter where I go or come for the last 20 years or the next 20 years, for the past 20 years or the next 20 years, uh, people still tell me that I am Fatah. So this scenario repeated itself with the other elected members who all had various types of relationships and histories to different factions, including Hamas, Islamic Jihad, the PFLP, and Fatah. So as you can imagine, this caused me a lot of frustration and grief, as here I am uh, studying these independent initiatives being um, undermined by factions, and I couldn't tell you know, who was and while I initially believed that this frustration was linked to my position as a researcher, as an outsider to the community, as someone who probably maybe couldn't navigate the politics of the community, I soon noticed that Palestinians had a lot of arguments between each other. So in meetings, I would be in meetings where people had to uh, mention their affiliation and someone would say, oh, I'm independent. And the others would say, oh, no, you're not. You know, you're really with the DFL. So there was a lot of and with time and by spending more time in the field, um, I came to realize that maybe the problem wasn't really with my position, but maybe uh, with a lot of the assumptions that underlie our thinking about the factions or about the nature. And this is where my second set of questions uh, came in. So as I hinted at the beginning of this talk, I contend that while we all know that factions are made of people who enter into different types of relationships with each other. That in the way we talk of them, in the way we study them, in the way we criticize them, we treat them as entities with a life of their own that exists separately 
and independently from the very people they so what does that mean? <laughs> Being an engineer, <laughs> a former engineer, I tend to look at it that we conceptualize factions as a building, almost like we can visualize it as a building, as a separate structure. And this actually is reflected in the terminology on a, on a daily basis. They say, I enter the faction, as if you're entering an edifice. They say, uh, they talk of a political ceiling, yes, that represents you know, the hierarchy and the vertical limitation. They say that factionalized Palestinians have a back, dahr, you know, it's like a wall behind you. So this notion of entering, of a ceiling, and of a back of walls really uh, points to factions that appear in our imagination as building. And visualizing factions as building is indeed appealing, as it demarcates factions from each other. They become you know, different buildings. It represents the hierarchy inside the factions, with the members at the bottom and the leadership at the top. And it helps explain how factions remain even when the people inside change, or when there's no longer people inside. They become empty buildings. And I begin my book with a quote from a young man who says that, you know, after the departure of the PLO in 1982, factions became empty buildings. So they've lost their popularity, but yet something that remains. Conceptualization of factions as a building-like structure is also evident in the academic research on, on the factions. So it's not just an everyday thing. Uh, scholars routinely refer to factions as actors, players, political bodies. You know, we call them political structures. Uh, they are ascribed actions, aspirations, intentions, and identities. Uh, they are referred to in the singular. You say Fatah did this or Hamas declared that. Uh, and they are studied through an examination of their ideologies, the history of their founding, uh, the regional and international alliances and sources of funding without examining the practice of those who form their very core, their members. So in this studies, um, I adopted an alternative approach to the study of factions, what I like to call a lateral approach. Um, so basically, I don't look at factions from the top down. I don't look at the party literature, <clears throat> the writings of party founders, or interviews with the leadership, nor is it a bottom-up approach. It's not an ethnography based on what used to be the inside of factions. So it would be like youth groups or, or, or uh, sports clubs. Rather, I position myself on, on the outside, or what appears to be the outside of factions from daily home life. Um, so basically, I was I did my fieldwork in Nahr al-Barid. Uh, I lived there for seven months with a family I had known for three years prior to my research. And through it, I was able to look at how factions appear in the daily life, how uh, refugees encounter them on a day-to-day -day basis. So this is what I did. And through this uh, perspective, I was able to see how the nature of factions, how we visualize them, changes depending on which practices we focus on. So I look at two sets of practices. Uh, first, in chapters three and four, I look at how Palestinians join factions and how the relationship evolves over time. Um, in, other words, in other words, I look at the nature of faction members. And I show, or hopefully I show, 
to read and see. Um, how the factions appear to be kind of a loose network of people bound together by different degrees of trust and cohesion that changes with time and context. They lose this appearance of a structure that is bounded. So I'll give an example. Uh, so uh, Mahmoud uh, was a young man in Ahl al-Barid. He was in his early 20s, and he had several jobs. He was a construction worker by day and a DJ by night. Um, he owned his own sound system. He performed in bachelor parties, you know, political events, and uh, weddings. He also worked with an NGO in aid distribution and uh, with children entertainment, like sound activities and so the first time I met Mahmoud, uh, I asked Mahmoud if he is affiliated to the faction. He tells me that he is in principle with the DFA, which seemed to imply that there's another uh, kind of in re reality answer. So when I tried to figure out this other answer, um, I was less dissatisfied as he basically recounted how during the 2007 conflict, uh, he volunteered with an NGO, the Najdi NGO, and found himself invited to party meetings. Uh, and so kind of became the effort. So making it sound like it was almost by mistake. Uh, around a month later, um, I saw him leading the DFLP scouts in the camps in a political event, in the camps through the alleys. So in my mind, when I saw him there, it confirmed Mahmoud is with the DFLP. Kind of erased that earlier confusion that I had. And then a month later, we're having a, a conversation in the evening, um, and I mentioned that I, I referred to him as a member of the DFLP, and he gets upset, tells me, no, I already told you I'm not with anyone. I'm with my own interest. So here, obviously, Mahmoud is insinuating that his personal interests are different from the faction's interests, and that they're basically not looking up. And it took me about a week to understand the cause of his anger that night. And turns out that the DFLP were uh, preparing to have their anniversary commemoration. And his uh, superior in the faction, who I'm referring to as Abu Mustafa, uh, asked him to provide a sound system for the event and offered to pay him. This was pre-2019. <laughs> pre offered to pay him 70,000 Lebanese pounds when Mahmoud knew that the year before they had paid 150 pounds, more than double to a friend of his who had lent them the sound system the year before. So he felt cheated and he left them. And he sent Abu Mustafa an SMS telling him, which means, you know, happy anniversary and you better find yourself someone else in Arabic fine. Um, so about a month later, the story continues, about a month later, we're in the car, we're driving back from Beirut to Nahr al-Barid, and he tells me about this young girl that he met, that he's, he likes her, and that they're exchanging text messages, and he's trying to meet up with her, and through the conversation, I learned that she's the daughter of Abu Mustafa, the same Abu Mustafa to whom he sent the, you know, daring text message, and clearly the relationship is evolving with Abu Mustafa. <laughs> The story continues. Uh, several months later, Mahmoud decides to go back to college. He had interrupted his studies during the conflict. And so he approached Abu Mustafa and he told Abu Mustafa told him that they will the DFLP will pay him the $200 yearly stipend that they give their students. 
So one could think here that the return was financially motivated, uh, but if uh, Mahmoud wanted to increase his financial gains, he better go to Fatah, who pay their students $46 a month, so much more than, than the DFLP. But by going back to Abu Mustafa, it shows that the relationship was ongoing. And it shows that trying to define Mahmoud's position as being inside or outside of the faction would have, is impossible. And not only is it impossible, but it would have missed a lot of the complexities of that relation. And it shows that a person's relationship with the faction is not a relationship with the person and the structure, but a relationship between people, people with whom we have a lot of different types of relations. So it was through such stories and many others the book has lots of stories. <laughs> and so basically, it was by examining people's life stories uh, that it appeared that kind of factions lost this appearance of structure. They lost this appearance of a bounded entity that one enters and leaves. And that, no uh, and that, that ideology no longer appeared to be their defining characteristic. And basically, that factional affiliation should not be seen as a, a kind of a snapshot of a person's present position with relative to structure, but as a continuously unfolding story of human interaction, like the interactions between Mahmoud and Abu Musa. And here I would like to add that um, by showing how political relations and personal relations intermix, uh, it may seem that I am arguing that Palestinian politics reflects a sort of backward, tribal form of politics where refugees are kind of putting their analytical faculties on hold or their political judgments and kind of are being guided by their personal interactions with others. But it's, I argue that it's opposite. Um, interpersonal trust, trust between people, trust gained over, the, uh, over years of knowing and interacting with each other plays a crucial role in building personal and political relations in a world defined by constant war, displacement, long-standing So in the context of, of you know, repeated forced expulsions and severe political oppression, it is not surprising that Palestinians place high value on international trust. If individuals felt wronged by each other, they would not engage in any type of political work, regardless of whether they kind of had the same worldview or political ideology or not. So then following this examination of people's life stories, um, then I move on in chapters five and six to look at another set of factors. Here I look at aid distribution, how Palestinian uh, refugees received aid from the faction, factionalism, the violent confrontations of factions between each other, and anniversary commemoration, the way that factions celebrate their birth, the founding. And I show how through these practices, we have that how these practices basically create a different imagine or a different conceptualization. How now factions appear. Um, that same structure that kind of disappeared when we had looked at people's lives. Now factions appear at edifices in their own right, edifices that are bounded with an inside and an outside, and that are defined by ideology. And how basically these edifices now end up controlling people's lives and causing mistrust in the community. And here I won't give examples because you know, I have to leave something for you to read the book. <laughs> so 
So uh, if I can summarize what this book is about in one sentence, I would say that it's an ethnography that traces how factions are formed through local, intimate, and interpersonal relations imbued with high levels of trust, and how through particular practices they metamorphose into impersonal structures that are distrusted by the community and that end up controlling people's lives. So in other words, trust and mistrust coexisted in the same relationship, explaining Palestinians' continued engagement with the faction while openly competing. This, I hope, would help us better understand the political impasse that Palestinians, others, find themselves in with unpopular factions representing them. <coughs> Thank you so much, uh, Perla, and I think uh, we'll have uh, some uh, uh, discussion later on after the two uh, uh, discussants. You have the floor, Smile. Thank you. The factions are like buildings, Perla, and I'm an architect. <laughs> I would say they are like this building, <laughs> unlike this room. <laughs> Thank you for it. Yes. Thanks a lot for this invitation. And uh, I have to say that I am very happy that my dear friend managed to finally write this book and to publish this book. And it's a book which uh, I relate to personally in many ways after reading it. Because I feel we both belong to a group of Palestinians who didn't grow up in the camps but we are Palestinians of the diaspora who are denied Palestine. And we went to the camps as young activists because these were the places where we felt we could engage in some way or another with the Palestinian question, with the Palestinian cause. But it's also the place where we were discovering and better understanding our Palestinian identity. So I think we were part of a generation who from the beginning never saw the fact space uh, that can host liberation at the stage where we were uh, engaging. But we were inspired by the camps because the camps seemed historically to be the places where uh, new politics, radical politics, liberation politics uh, traditionally, historically emerged. So we were attracted to because they were the places where Palestinian communities existed in the diaspora, which is quite important for Palestinians uh, who didn't live and who couldn't go to Palestine and who always felt like outsiders or others in the communities where they uh, resided. So going to the camps was one of the ways in which we searched for home or uh, where we searched for the idea of community. Of course, not all of us found what we wanted or what we expected, uh, but nevertheless, we learned through these engagements about activism, we learned about Palestine, and we learned a lot about ourselves. And we also left with a lot of unanswered questions, questions about action, questions about activism, and thus uh, academic research and writing becomes new tools through which we reflect on our practices, on our engagement. And this is why I felt that 
Perla went into academia. And why she wrote this book. And this is why this book is important. And reading this book uh, makes us think about a lot of things, but I will talk about three things. Perla already mentioned, but I will comment a little bit. First is really the, the power of ethnography. And reading this book for someone who lived in Nahr al-Barid for three years and left 10 years ago, reading it today really took me back to Nahr al-Barid. Stirred uh, memories, feelings. It even brought back uh, smells, sounds. Uh, that have been dormant in my subconscious for uh, a long time. It shows the power of ethnographic writing in capturing experiences and places in ways that traditional writing cannot. And so this writing reveals uh, a very harsh, but also a very necessary criticism of the factions in Lebanon, but not through the words of Perla. They emerge through the words of the very people uh, who have to endure the faction, endure the endurance <laughs> of the faction. And this obviously reflects on the harshness of the lives of the Palestinians living in the camps in Lebanon and their great disappointment with their political leaders. Still, Perla always makes us uh, see or shows us how ordinary people are always able to find beauty, happiness, hope in these suffocating realities. The second important question that Perla raises in her book is how the factions managed to persist despite their unpopularity. It's a very sincere question. It's also a very funny question. It's a question which we probably ask ourselves. We think we know the answer. Our answer never really satisfies. No? Uh, but we don't admit, you know, we don't really know. So it's nice to have a book that honestly wants to address this question. Finally, we have a book that talks about this thing. Um, when asking this question, we have to be able to differentiate between different factions. They are not all the same. And we have to differentiate between the necessity, our necessity for organized political movement that can struggle for political change especially in difficult context of the colonization of Palestine, and between our need to legitimately critique, critique quite a large group of Palestinian factions who are facing serious legitimacy issues. In the specific condition of Palestinian camp, in the specific condition of Lebanon, and in the now, past 10, 15 years. So this is a very specific group of factions that we're talking about. We have to remember. And in this specific condition, I wonder if we can, maybe we cannot say, or we shouldn't say that the factions endured. Maybe we can say that they are maintained by actors and institutions that go beyond Palestinians, maintained by regional players who fund them, by international organizations that legitimize them, maintained by transactional, transnational, factional network, and more importantly, maintained by the Lebanese state and its various military and security branches who empower the faction. They need the faction because it's through the faction that the state is able to monitor, control, and police the camps. 
for the factions today, whether we like it or not, they are the police of the state in the camps. This is the reality. And more importantly, factions have proven to be very effective actors in maintaining the status quo in the Palestinian. This is their agreed role. In Perla's book, it is quite self-evident that she is discussing the factions in this specific moment, specific place. Because if we look at factions, for example, in Lebanon outside the camps, they have not endured. No, very, very little power over Palestinians. We cannot use the same words as endurance and maintenance of factions in the context of occupied Palestine in the same way, where there is a direct and daily confrontation with occupation. In Palestine, actually, it becomes clearer which elements of the factions are as, as empty buildings, which factions are extensions of the occupation, and which are fighting them, start to differentiate. In Lebanon, the factions have endured, but they have endured to play a completely different role from that in which they were originally created for. Which takes us to my last point, last question that Perla raises. Why have grassroots initiatives not replaced especially if they are so unpopular? And the book elaborates very well of the, on the role of social relations that bind people and on the different forms of dependencies that refugees have on the planet. But the answers to why the grassroots does not replace the factions lies in the nature of the grassroots initiatives themselves, which, on the most part, typically do not want to replace the factions. They do not strive for political power, the grassroots in Lebanon. They focus mostly on addressing and reacting to very specific and defined issues. They try to work on improving the material needs, specific material needs in the camp, such as the physical reconstruction or repairing a problematic network in Burj al-Barajni, for example. In that sense, they resemble what Manuel Castells, a Spanish sociologist, calls urban movement. Which, very which is very different from political movements. And Castells describes urban movements in two very different and even contradictory ways. First, he describes them as quite limited and temporal. They are unable to confront global systems and transnational networks which control modern urban life. In fact, he says urban movements actually emerge at the moments where people lose faith in their ability to create political change. It is at this moment that they focus on working or dealing with material, improving their material urban life. That's when they focus on creating these. On the other hand, he also makes sure to mention something different, that urban movements have a fantastic capacity to influence, to influence political actors. They have a capacity to inspire new modes of activism, and within them lies the seeds for new social movements and new political movements. Operla talks always about this double nature of the fact. They switch 
within as they find convenient. But their mirror is also this double nature, the grassroots. The strange duality of fragility on one side, but yet latent potentiality that exists within them. So Perla is right. We cannot blame always the factions for the temporality of the grassroots. There is something in the genetic code of these grassroots yeah, initiatives. Problem sound. Uh, Anna, do you hear us? What What is it in terms of hierarchy, political hierarchy among the factions? Um, and then maybe my last question goes to Ismail. Uh, you have said in your uh, uh, intervention that to, the factions have the role to maintain the status quo uh, and that they have, or that this is a agreed role. So I would, I would be interested in how, I mean, uh, I agree this to a certain point uh, uh, that uh, factions are maintaining the status quo, but is there really an agreement among the factions to maintain the status quo? Only uh, some few question of the thousands that you triggered. Thank you. Thank you so much. Would you like to present yourself? Yeah, my name is Samira Khirallah. I'm working for the GIZ at the Palestinian portfolio. Welcome. Um, Ahmed? So I hope I will answer most questions, not not in any order, because I think there was a lot of interactions between the different things that were said. Um, so first, I I believe that knowledge is is from always from a particular pers perspective, um, and that's why I am in the book always explain what my particular position is, and uh, my um, my uh, my focus was on. Um, everyday life. So I, I made no effort to befriend uh, leadership in factions or to be inside factional meetings or to be uh, in, in areas of decision making within that. You know, I was just on purpose, uh, was staying with families and homes and looking at their everyday interactions. So I cannot speak of interfactional um, experience or, you know, debates. Um, and from the, my perspective, or from this perspective, uh, the, 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 the difference between factions was lost. So this is to, to the point where that there are differences between factions. Obviously, there are differences between factions. But from the perspective of um, home life, that perspective was lost. And I was intermingling with families with a lot of different you know, acquainted with different factions. So that was lost. Um, why Nahr al-Barid? Um, so first, Nahr al-Barid, because, so I actually first began my uh, research in Shatila, as I mentioned, but very soon I realized that I cannot perform this research if the people don't know me really well, because the answers that I was getting was, it's a long story, it's 
film, it was, you know, when I want to hear people's intimate stories with factions, including not just because you, when you go to someone, you ask them, you know, why are you in the TFLP? They will give you the ideological answer. So people do know the political stance of the faction they are part of. They will tell you it's because they were against Oslo. And, but really, you have to know someone really well and that they have to trust you and they have to kind of know where you're coming from to kind of get this other story of, oh, you know, I was walking by and I saw this beautiful girl singing and I just decided I needed to be with the TFLP while, you know, my father was Fateh. So, so I chose to work in Nahr al-Barid because it's where I had long-standing relationships. I had been active or visit or, you know, a part of, you know, the camp, working in the camp for the past three years. The family I, I lived with was a family I had known for a long time. And um, so that was kind of one of the reasons I chose Nahr al-Barid. The second was because um, at that time, four years after the destruction of the camp, opposition to the factions was at a peak. So in a sense, it was where the question uh, of the relevance was most puzzling because there was so much opposition considering they had stood on the sideline during conflict. Many residents, uh, many Palestinians uh, blamed them, you know, the having abandoned the camp. Um, and uh, they were no arms, they were disarmed, so there was no physical coercion and political patronage was, you know, was at the low. So it found, it was in a sense, kind of the best uh, place. Plus it was where I had, had the possibility of doing the research. Um, so in terms of, um, I'm, I'm juggling, in terms of putting the factions off the hook <laughs> and not looking at other dynamics, uh, again, the, this research, as I said, it's from a particular uh, perspective, and it actually, in the way I see it, I could be wrong, it helps to explain how come other actors, Lebanese or others, uh, government, uh, help to maintain. So I, in, in a way, I had felt that there was a question, if they were so unpopular, how are these other actors, regional, local, you know, Lebanon, outside, able to keep the status quo, able to keep maintain them uh, if they had so little legitimacy. It, so it was in a way trying to shed light. It doesn't answer the entire question. Obviously the question is, is a huge, but it sheds light or I hope. My, obviously when I started my research, I had no idea what I was going to find. So this was kind of a surprise to, to find how these, how the importance of interpersonal trust, the importance of these relations um, that continue um, um, these relations with these factions from people that are highly critical and highly opposed to factions. And yet I would discover that they had these kind of fluid relations. So it's kind of trying to explain um, how come um, you know, others are able to use them and remain. Um, um, sorry, just looking through uh, some of Hala's questions. Uh, so, yeah, so the space and the factions. Um, so, yes, so the a question about context also between Hala and, and Ismail. Uh, yes, this, this the research is very much ethnography. So, it's based, it's 
very particular to one particular place at one particular time, Nahir Barrett in 2011. Um, but I do think that the uh, um, arguments or some of the conclusions can be used not only just for the Palestinians, for the Lebanese, and for you know, anybody, because at the end of the day, all political parties are made of people. And all also claim they have this uh, appearance of, you know, of a structure. And so what I kind of hope to, to, to be, I don't know, if encouraging or suggesting is a different way of studying them, a different methodology. So practices certainly change. They change in Nahibarit from Ayn al-Hilwe, they change from Nablus, they change from the Lebanese parties, they change you know, from the American parties. Uh, but the importance of looking at those everyday practices to kind of understand how the structure is experienced and lived and how people see them on an everyday basis. So, um, and, and I think I do make that point in the sense that obviously practices change from one place to the other, but kind of this duality of people and structure remains. Um, and again, for Syria, same thing. So just practices are different there. So there would need to be another, another, uh, another more research, um, but the concept, the basis is, is uh, I think, is the same. Um, are there people who love the factions? <laughs> uh, sure, uh, but I would say they're a minority <laughs> in, in, in the Palestinian context. Um, I think in a lot of ways, the Lebanese context is moving towards to be a Palestinian context. Uh, so, you know, it's the beginning of the road. Um, but yes, I'm sure there's a spectrum, you know, like everything. Um, so pre-war, Nahr al-Barid, I think you mentioned, Amr, that yes, Nahr al-Barid was a commercial hub. Nahr al-Barid is on the main highway that links Lebanon to Syria. And it's in the main agricultural area and it's on the Mediterranean Sea. So you have um, a Lebanese farmer who come to the camp before the war to, to sell their produce, um, residents from Tripoli who go to the camp to buy cheap goods. So it definitely was a, a, a commercial hub and had, compared to other camps, was the most integrated camp. And I think uh, Ismail can talk a lot more about this uh, than I can. Uh, but uh, yes, with the conflict that ended because of military checkpoints, the impossibility to go in the camp without a permit, and that's why I think my research, going back to Hala, was so focused in the camp because really the camp was isolated at that point from the surrounding. Uh, and even my, I have a story of my own troubles accessing the camps, uh, the camp to further the research. Um, yeah. Oh, so other reasons to enter factions. Um, so one, one chapter in my book, first of all, the book is open access, <laughs> so you can all read it online. Uh, so there's a chapter about how Palestinians uh, encounter or their, how their relationship starts. And um, from all of my interviewees, one person told me that they uh, approached the faction for financial reasons. Um, so people what I found was that people do gain from being part of financial, like there is financial gain, but their choice of which faction to approach is rarely a calculation of which one is gonna give me the most return. Uh, 
figuring out which one to approach at that time in embedded uh, was very much dependent on personal relations. On who do I know? Who do I trust? Who's my so my my friend, my family member, my neighbor? So it was all, and this is actually consistent in social um, social movement theory uh, that all mobilizations or protest movements really do start at the beginning. As much as you want to talk about grievances and political reason, political ideology, it really always starts through personal interactions because you need to have that trust. Uh, and yes, and then after that, there are many discussions about political positions and visions and ideology. Absolutely, they are very much aware. But the initial contact is always through someone. Uh, what you know, my research. Uh, um, um, I don't know if there was more. Smile, uh, for this round. Regarding the question, uh, did we really see the camp as a home? I mean, we have to remember I was talking about the specific category of Palestinians who didn't grow up in camps, who lived in the diaspora, who couldn't, uh, but who grew up with an imagination of the camp as a place of liberation politics, a place of the birth of the Palestinian revolution, and a place of Palestinian identity. So there was a lot of romanticizing for, for this category of people. So we went and we visited the camps because naturally Palestinians have a kind of void in relation with the idea of home as a physical place or even as a social uh, community. And the camp appeared theoretically to provide some answer to that. It's part of the journey of self-discovery in the end of Palestinians in one way or another. Uh, regarding the idea of the status quo, do, do the factions have an internal agreement within them to maintain the status quo? I mean, I think maybe if we reflect, we zoom out a little bit in time, and we look at this question of the legitimacy of the faction, but historically, the legitimacy wasn't just a Palestinian legitimacy. It was a, a pan-Arab legitimacy. Syrians, Lebanese, they were part of the factions. They believed it was, was beyond people living. It was a much bigger thing. And the role of the faction wasn't just the liberation of Palestine. It was the liberation of, for a lot of, some of the factions, a lot of the factions was the liberation of the Arab world from the tyrants, from the monarchs, from, the, from all these things. So they had this basic premise. Their role is to, yes, it was against status quo. It was, it was uh, about revolting, about all these things. This died. <laughs> uh, uh, they lost their legitimacy in the Arab world. They lost their legitimacy among the Palestinians. And they are, as Perla's book talks about, they are ghosts. <laughs> they are hanging by strings, by a very uh, specific uh, set of strings that are maintaining them in a specific position to play a certain role in the camps in Lebanon. Okay? Specific context because we cannot talk the same way about them in Palestine. And they need each other, all the factions, in this theater. They need each other. They know each other. They know how to maintain each other. And if they don't agree on the status quo, they will fight. <laughs> so I think it's an unsaid agreement. It's a kind of, they don't really say it, but it's kind of... Hello? 
Uh, do you have something to say, Hala? Uh, thank you. Uh, I just wanted to add something uh, regarding the question of if, if there's someone who loves the faction. I think that uh, uh, when, when you hear people talking about faction, the most common thing is to say that, okay, we hate faction, everything. But at the same time, you have this discourse and you, you talk about that, Perla. You have some people who tell you that I, I love Fatah, and especially with Fatah, I, <laughs> I noticed that. I love Fatah, but not the new Fatah, the past one. And you have uh, always this, um, yeah. Thank you, Hala. And actually, yeah, if I can add just to your comment, the harsh, that the book is harsh, it's a product of the time I made it. This is what I was hearing. And this was what uh, the, this is why I did the book. Thank you. Uh, so Ahmed, and uh, yeah, and behind, and Yasmin, uh, and Ghassan. Yeah, by order. And uh, Sari, sorry, I, 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 I would have also uh, two other questions. Okay. Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Ahmad. I'm a student student of Dr. Sari. Um, so we've read the introduction and the conclusion of the book. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the, the, the question is, my question, um, how central is um, the reality of dependency in times of high stress for people right so we should not forget that these people these human beings in the camps are uh, excluded um, they're pushed out all of that so they go searching for connections more and more right so linking that to the grassroots initiatives that Ismail was talking about so you're saying that the grassroots initiatives typically work on concrete um, or, or uh, how did you term it, um, providing uh, aid in, in one way or another, but not looking at the political um, or not aiming at being um, a political movement in one way or another. Am I, am I right to say that? Like providing some type of personal relief, right? Or relief on, a, on, a, on the personal level. I think two issues. Yeah. Either they are working on uh, material things, things that relate to the material improvement of Palestinian refugees, such mm -hmm. as electricity network, water, reconstruction, improving the material urban life, or very specific issues that they feel is very important for them at this moment of time, such as the right of return, such as... Uh, uh, demonstrating against a specific issue that's happening at this time. So it's a momentary issue yeah. that they come together to deal with. Thank you. So thinking about this dependency in times of stress, so it, it splits into multiple parts. One of these parts is material stuff, electricity, food, warmth, all of that. Um, there are much more other aspects, um, spiritual, uh, motivational, aspirational, mental, emotional, all of that. So when you're pushed outside, this dependency increases, I'm thinking out loud, and then um, linking, creating these personal connections becomes stronger, right? But you're saying that these factions are unpopular and in a way illegitimate, but 
they kind of are still above the threshold of legitimacy because they're still there and they're still impactful, right? Kind of. Be because, yeah, so, so let me end. Um, my question is, if these grassroots initiatives worked harder on, on, on um, providing a more sustainable way to decrease this dependency in times of stress, do you think that internally, organically, the factions would lose more and more legitimacy, which would 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 um, result in their demise at the end, hopefully. Uh, thank you, Ahmed. Uh, so uh, be behind, please, can you sit next to, uh, uh, yeah, uh, to Yasmin? Amina, yeah, please. So, yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Amina. I'm a PhD candidate at London School of Economics and Political Science um, in uh, statecraft and security. So I've uh, read the Perla's book I, uh, long ago, <laughs> and uh, I love it so much because uh, for many, many reasons. Uh, some of them were because uh, I think that Perla's book speaks right to me as a Palestinian refugee living in, born and raised in the uh, living in uh, al Barajni refugee camp. And uh, it feels that it really gives me this sense of someone who's talking about the refugees from within rather than someone who's an outsider. And that's something really important for me as a Palestinian. I hate to be or to feel that I am being studied or at the subject of someone else's research. I, I don't like it. And, um, and also, um, so uh, it, it also... I think it's one of the very few researches out there that talks about the Palestinian refugees after Oslo in a sense of, in a politicized sense, um, away from the humanitarian side, um, which most of the research that is being done right now about the humanitarian side. And also I don't like that personally. Um, I have just two questions. The first one is, um, so you answered the part of um, why Nahr al-Barid. I wanted to know more about the absence of weapons in Nahr al-Barid, how this affected the Palestinian um, dynamics with their factions, because I'm aware that the Palestinians rely heavily on the existence of the factions in the Palestinian refugees, uh, refugee camps for um, protection and safety. Uh, and they are aware of the fact that if the palace of the if the factions are not here anymore or they are absent, that the Palestinians are going to be more vulnerable and they're going to be, you know, uh, destroyed in a sense. Um, and in spite of the fact that this is uh, a memory that is held by the second generation and the first generation of Palestinian refugees, it seems like we have inherited this as well. Because when the last incident happened in Nahr al-Barid, when the um, a Lebanese army, I don't know what you want, you want to call it, raided or whatever, the, the, the camp, the first, the very first thing that people were asking, what, where, is, where are the factions? Why they didn't do anything about it? In spite of the fact that they know that they're hopeless or helpless in, in, uh, in Nahr al-Barid. So I want to know um, how this changed from one camp, like from Nahr al-Barid, it's a very good uh, a place to start with um, compared to other refugee camps where the weapons are still there and they're still used and they're still effective. Um, there's also another question that I wanted to ask, but I forgot. 
<laughs> so I think that's enough. Okay, Yasmin. Uh, hello, uh, I'm another one of Dr. Hanafi's students. And um, one thing that struck me about um, the excerpts from your book that I read um, was a comment you made about the, chamele the chameleon nature of factions. Uh, so of course, uh, one point you mentioned a lot is how uh, one part of it is kinship relations and another part of it is the um, political networks that are impersonal entities. Um, but the comment you made about it that struck me was that this isn't necessarily the intrinsic nature of factions, but more so um, their nature at the moment due to practices. And I found this very interesting because um, it implied to me that um, my question is hypothetically, since this isn't an intrinsic nature of factions, could there be significant change in the dynamic between these two aspects of factions over time? And if there could be such a change, then what would lead to that? I wondered, maybe it's something uh, like what Ismail was talking about, um, like the focus on urban movement right now. And uh, he said that this can sometimes inspire a political movement as well, or political change. Um, do you think that's possible? When do you think that might happen? And how would something like that happen? Thank you. Thank you, Yasmin. Ghassan? Hi, uh, I'm also one of Dr. Hanafi's students. Uh, I just want, wanted to know more about the dynamics between the people and uh, the, the groups. Um, I want to know, like, do they kind of cater to the people to curve their unpopularity, or is it the other way around? Do people follow their decisions? Yeah, I want to know more about the uh, Palestinian groups. Like, do they cater to the people to curve their unpopularity, or is it the other way around? Do people follow them? Uh, th thank you, Hassan. Uh, Hala, do you have a question? Yes, I have uh, one question. Or I will, uh, no, no, one question. Uh, what about um, the factions uh, in the current uh, situation in Lebanon? So with the current crisis, is there are more are they are more powerful or no? Do you know, Perla? Uh, uh, thank you. So uh, you have the floor. Thank you. Um, so sorry, just a quick quick. So dependency in times in times of stress, um, and wh whether there. Okay, I'll go back. <laughs> Sorry, I'll go back. Yeah, yeah. Amina, Shukran. <laughs> thank you. Um, absence of weapons in Nahr al Um uh, You know, again, when I did my research in Nahr al it was just when those arms, the factions' arms, were useless in the sense that the camp uh, had been attacked. Uh, and the factions didn't do anything. And as Ismail says in, in his work on the Hedbarid, it was the first time that a Palestinian camp has been uh, abandoned, like abandoned, abandoned by its uh, people, by its residents, uh, while it's being attacked. The first time in history in, in uh, Lebanese Palestinian in the history in Lebanon 
that a camp was abandoned by its residents without, uh, you know, trying to uh, protect them. So, uh, so people were quite disillusioned. Uh, and so those weapons, they didn't feel that they missed, I mean, from my experience, that there was a problem that factions were disarmed because when they were armed, they didn't actually use them to protect. Um, my, uh, you know, not as engaged engagement with the other camps, but my, you know, limited engagement with other camps is that often, and maybe Hala can speak of Shatila because her, her work more is centered on Shatila, is that often the arms is also looked at as a source of insecurity. So it's not always looked at as, as, as the, you know, a road to liberation um, as much as a source of inner, you know, control and in the camps and a source of insecurity or in terms of, um, you know, fights between factions and then bystanders uh, being killed. Uh, the chameleon nature. Yes, uh, thank you uh, for that question. Because actually it, it, um, this, it's exactly what I was trying to say in the, in the book that this kind of power that factions had or, or Changing structure, uh, changing, na uh, changing nature, was not, um, you know, intrinsic, but that therefore can be changed, and that therefore I end the book with a question, you know. So because obviously, you know, when I started this research, as Ismail says, and because he knows me, uh, you know, I had this question: How come they're still, you know, powerful? How come they're still around? And I didn't want to end it being so pessimistic, saying, well, there's nothing we can do about it, or that, you know, it's no one's fault and then keeping them off the hook. But it was more like now knowing this, how can we, so how can we change it? And this is also why uh, I'm happy to have Maid here because he has a very different perspective from the work of factions and these grassroots. And not the, also he has certainly a lot of experience in the, in the ground up, but also has experience on the other levels of the factions that I wasn't uh, part of. So I don't know if I answer you, but yes, I'm definitely insinuating that with this knowledge, how can we use this knowledge to have now a different outcome, to be able to work better as activists? Understand um, the dynamics between people and the group. Do they cater to them or do people follow them? Neither. <laughs> this is kind of the point. So. The factions aren't, I mean, the people don't look at them as being catering to them and they don't really follow. So that was really the central question of the book is like, how come they're still relevant when neither is happening? Um, and this links back to Ahmed's question about dependency in times of stress. Uh, from my finding, I didn't, I didn't find that refugees were more dependent on factions as times got harder. Um, that was not, because again, in the, at the time of my research, times were very hard in Nahrid Barid, uh, but there, there wasn't that uh, dynamics. Yes, they're, they're definitely dependent on each other. Um, and yes, that can explain kind of that, absolutely. And this is why I feel like this, this central argument is the importance of trust between people that is often looked at. And this is why I say when we look at factions differently from more of the top or looking through their, you know, regional alliances or their political ideology, we miss how at the center 
there is that person-to-person -person relation um, that is so paramount to life in the camp, to surviving the camps in the absence of any other structure, any other form of protection or, or help to, to, for you to survive. Um, and this brings me to Hala's question about now. Um, as we all know now, uh, with the devaluation of the Lebanese lira, with the you know, humongous economic crisis and political and security and everything crisis happening in Lebanon, certainly factions have been strengthened to some degree uh, in terms of now what was minimal political patronage has become less, you know, not minimal anymore. Um, but to what degree have them become stronger or is, is I think is an open question. Um, because I do not see more popularity. I still see people preferring to leave Lebanon than stay. I would, uh, wanted to say a word, please. I just want to maybe quick uh, quick comments on also what uh, Smail and Hala raised in addition to Perla. Um, first, uh, the, the, the weapons that was used by Fath al-Islam during the uh, conflict was the faction's arms, basically, because they overtook this uh, large stock of weapons and used them to to initiate the the uh, the fight with the Lebanese army, so this is also another way of seeing it. Uh, the second thing is about uh, Smail's mainly comment on maintaining the maintaining the status quo and maintaining the factions, and that the responsibility of different actors and power holders in maintaining uh, these structures. First, I think we have to. Uh, always remember that we have to identify the factions not only as political because they are armed groups, they are non-state actors and armed groups. And uh, by de facto, they are the ones who are running the camps and who exercise violence in the camps, not anyone else. And therefore, the way the grassroots is looking at them, the way uh, state actors look at them, and the way that different, uh, different structures can deal with them is on this basis, because they have the exclusive views uh, of, uh, over violence in this territory. And uh, this is why I have to, I have to, I, I think it's part of the broader discussion that what, what the legitimacy comes from is mainly, in my own personal opinion, is first the, the, use, of, uh, the use of arms and the possibility of the use of arms, this is one. And two, the, strong, the second strong legitimacy factor is the nostalgic uh, narrative of the uh, Palestinian revolution, is that we have been trying to liberate Palestine, and they are still thrive on this idea, on this heritage of resistance and trying to, uh, to, uh, to fight for, uh, for liberation. And I think it still serves today, because also on this table, uh, a lot of us are, are having the same kind of still arguments, uh, a smile. I think um, there are a lot of parallels that has to be drawn between, I think Hala tried to hint them, between the Lebanese uh, political structures and the Palestinian one. And I think both learned the worst of the other experience. Uh, and I think Palestinians learned the worst from the Lebanese uh, political parties and the same other way uh, on, the, on, the, on the other hand. And uh, this, for me, I think um, it is a crucial question to are we trying or um, 
Have they been attempting to change the static or no? They are actors of stability and this is their role in the, in the overall uh, system. Uh, this is normal and this is ex to be expected as well. Because I think in many situations where the Palestinians has this uh, instability in the camps, it led to big grievances and uh, destruction and uh, massacres and so on. So, um, and the, I think in the Palestinian somehow consciousness, this is a big, big question that uh, it's a lot, uh, the love and the hate relationship with the arms uh, in the Palestinian camps in Lebanon in particular, because and it, it is at the same time, the source of security and the threat for their own security as many lives has been lost in the last years, only an internal, conflict between the factions over who takes the Zarube or controls this uh, high in that camp or that without actually uh, no purpose. They, uh, there is no purpose of the Sahabathi uh, somehow. Uh, the death is in the camps today because of the arms in the name of Palestine. So I just, uh, I'm sorry, I just wanted to comment on this. Uh, maybe it's a bit far from uh, the book subject, but I think uh, that uh, this was raised and I think it's important to maybe talk about. Thank you, Abed. Uh, Ismail, Perla, uh, uh, do you want to, yeah, last word, uh, you run over uh, time. Yes. It's just the uh, last word and then we will uh, uh, conclude. Yeah, go ahead. I'll respond to the last questions. Uh, there was a question, if the grassroots work harder, can they provide more material needs to the camp, to the refugees? And this empowers the refugees of the camp to be more autonomous from the faction. And we have to remember that these grassroots initiatives that are made of people from the camp, they are, um, they are volunteers. <laughs> they are unemployed. They have very little access to resources. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and they do and they do work very 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 hard. <laughs> they work the maximum they can. Uh, they give a lot of their own time, of their personal resources to be able to address one very specific issue and they they compromise a lot in order to do that. So I don't think it's a matter of how hard they work. They have their social capital. They don't have access to a lot of resources. And actually, a lot of them want to avoid the resources, the financial resources of the factions. They want to avoid the financial resources of some international organizations because they want to be independent. And those who do not, and who take resources, they lose some of their legitimacy because they become like the factions. So they have this dilemma. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, so, so this was my answer to your question. And of course, there's a lot more we can discuss on this. But on the questions, why don't the urban movements become political? Uh, I think we have to understand that the power of the urban movement, social movements, is that they are able to affect power. Uh, they inspire, I mean, in the camps, when the grassroots movement move, the factions follow them. They run behind them. 
because the action is there and the factions have nothing. And suddenly they're running, they want to attach themselves to this car. They want to take something from them. So this is their ability, this is their power. If they become political, actually this is the danger, they fragment. Because the grassroots are able to bring so many very different people together on one issue. But if they want to agree on all the issues, they, they, don't, they, they don't find the commonality. And this is the same in Lebanese context. So we agree we need to do something about the garbage issue in Beirut. Now everybody goes down. Tell us, uh, it's enough. All the parties, all the people. But if we want to talk about resistance in Palestine, about our position on Hezbollah, if we want, they become 20,000. So th this is the power of these, these kind of movements. And the evolution from grassroots political movements is really a very complex, long-term thing. It's not something that can happen overnight. That's why Castells called it the seeds of future. Through these experiences, people engage in activism, in community organizing. They learn. They learn from their mistakes. They try again. They evolve and they evolve. Maybe they don't and they disappear. Or maybe they evolve into something that can inspire new movements. So it's this is a very long term and difficult and difficult. Thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's uh, it's four thirty, and we we unless it's uh, quick. No, okay. I don't want to keep you, but I mean, just UNRWA and grassroots organization. Um, Twenty years ago, UNRWA, there was somebody in UNRWA who actually wanted to create grassroots organization to create. A counter, a juxtaposition to political action. It was somebody very um, good-willed, a very optimistic, um, and maybe politically a bit naive. So these grassroots organizations were created, supported by UNRWA, based on volunteerism. Had no sustainability. They remained dependent on UNRWA in terms of their finances. But what you had described happened in an environment where you do not have a democratic culture, where you have freedom of speech, um, where people can thrive and express themselves and organize themselves, political factions or the regimes, the host governments, co-opted those community-based organizations for their own purpose. And they became something very, very different from what they were supposed to be. So our experience with community-based and grassroots organizations are that in this context, they simply do not work. And there are no alternatives, unfortunately. So this vacuum of governance in the Palestinian community is it is, it is a real issue. And it leads to exactly those dynamics that I assume you described in the book. And it, it is a curse in, in many ways. And it's very, very unfortunate. And UNRWA is not able to fill vacuum and with governance. So it still remains to be there. And, Okay, so with this note, I would like to thank you all for really uh, for uh, your participation, but, but above all, Perla Isa and uh, Ismail Sheikh Hassan and Hal uh, Abu Zaki from Paris. So uh, thank you so much, and hopefully to see you in other activities of games and IBS. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.